child is born. The gift of a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His ruling authority will grow, and there will be no limits to the wholeness that he brings. He'll rule with fairness and justice from the throne of David for all eternity. This will be accomplished through the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Good morning, everybody. And welcome again to Waters Church. If you are here for the first time, a special welcome to you on this, our Christmas before, or Sunday before Christmas. So glad that you are here. And if you have any questions at all, you can go to our Info Central tables in the cafe and right outside those glass doors on your way out this morning. So let's take our Bibles out and let's go to uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke, the first chapter. And I'm going to talk to you about somebody that I've never preached on before in my in my life, and I'm almost embarrassed to share it with you because uh, this person is kind of important. Uh, I'm going to talk to you, or I'm going to preach about Mary, and Mary plays, of course, a huge role in what God began to do 2,000 years ago in the world. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at when the angel comes to see Mary, what he says to her, and how she responds. Luke chapter one, would you stand with me as we read from these verses one more time? Stand with me. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, everybody said it, Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, and she's also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. I'm mean, gonna love that verse right there. Let's say it all together. For nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, and Mary said, and I love her response, and this is the key verse today. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your spirit will come and minister to us today, that your spirit will speak through the word 
and it will change our lives and it will make us more like Jesus, reveal more of Jesus to our hearts today. May we walk out of here talking and loving Jesus more than ever before for the glory of Jesus and because of Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. When I was 16 years old, I was working in a hardware store, and and the hardware store was down the street from the fire department of my little town. I remember when I would work outside in the lumber yard of that hardware store that the alarm would sound from the fire department, and it would let off this blaring horn, and every time it went off, I would listen to the trucks drive by and scream up the street with their loud sirens and the guys with the hats and the coats on the back of that truck. And I used to look at it and I said, wow, that's pretty cool, that's awesome. And so what I did was I, I was 16 years old, I signed up to be a volunteer fire department, fireman. And I was so proud of myself and I wish that I could say to you that it was because of a sense of duty that I signed up to be part of that fire department. I wish that I could tell you that I had noble plans and noble dreams and I wanted to help my fellow man and save people from the flames of death and and be a hero and and stand up for uh, safety and let other people feel my service to them as valued members of the human race. I wish I could tell you all those things, but none of them would be true because I signed up purely out of selfish reasons. I wanted to ride on the back of those fire trucks. (laughs) And I did. I got on there that that first time the horn went out. I took my tool belt off at the hardware store. I ran down the street. I got my coat on and my hat on. I had no clue what I was doing, but I jumped on the back of that truck and I said, let's go. Let's save some people, yeah! And we were driving down the street and my head leg was hanging off the side and I was watching the little lines go and we were running through traffic and everybody was pulling over. It was so cool. It was fun. And then I became a first responder. That's like the next step after you're a fireman or a volunteer fireman. And you went through some classes of CPR and, and some medical preparation classes. Has anybody here in this room been a first responder at any time? Anybody? Okay, two and a couple, one. I mean, that, there was one in first service. We need to pray for those people. They need some, some heart. But we, 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 I, I was a first responder, and a first responder means that they are the first people on the scene of an accident to help. And they don't really have a lot of medical training, but they prepare the area for the EMT who's gonna come in and really dress the wound and put the person in the ambulance and drive them off to the hospital. And I, I, I was a first responder and, and, and I, I was totally selfish about it. I just wanted to be where the action was. It wasn't about saving people, it was about blessing me. And what do you expect? from a 16-year-old teenage boy, right? Because we all know that when you're in an accident, that the sight of a 16-year-old boy with pimples on his face and his voice changing as he runs up to you, I'm here to help, (laughs) is not exactly comforting. Like when you're in an accident, you're not first thinking, I really need a teenager right now. Teenagers are people who believe that playing Call of Duty is actually a Call of Duty. (laughs) 
Teenagers are all about themselves. Teenagers are all about their selfies and their cell phones. And no one looks at a teenager and says, I think that to really fix society, we need to do some things with teenagers. Nobody thinks that. But we're here today. Because 2,000 years ago, and we gather on the weekends, every weekend in this church, because 2,000 years ago, God Almighty looked at the human carnage of the original train wreck, sin entering this world, and said, I know I'm gonna fix it, and here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna find me a couple of teenagers, and I'm gonna have them have a baby. Isn't that crazy? Like, I think about God, and I say, God, you really know how to do things different. Because that's not my choice. That's not what I would do. So the title of this message is this, Mary, God's First Responder. The reason for that title is not just because she was the person through which Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was born, but it's because, first off, I think we have to realize and we have to kind of remove the layers of Christian tradition or church tradition and realize that Mary and Joseph were teenagers. I know you've seen the Christmas plays, right? You've been to the churches where they have the Christmas choir, Christmas plays, the Christmas plants, everything's Christmas. And then you see Mary take the stage. And let's all be honest, who's Mary in almost every single Christmas play? It's the church secretary. Because <laughs> they couldn't guilt anybody else into doing it. And she's on the payroll, so stinks to be you. Don the blue and white gown and get up there and act the best that you can. And most times Mary is in her 30s or 40s, or God bless her, sometimes in her 50s, and she'll have crow's feet around her eyes, but we are supposed to believe that she's a virgin. <laughs> and it's kind of strange, and it's not exactly historically accurate because historians tell us that Virgins in the first century of Israel were probably between the age of 12 and 15. 12 and 15. This girl could have been a 12-year-old. I have a 12-year-old. And I love her to death. And she is my firstborn child. And she is my heart and soul. She's the apple of my eye. I love her. But ain't no way I'm looking at her having children. Not until she's 30 <laughs> or later after she's got her law degree. All right, that's where I'm going. And this is not where God went, right? I barely trust my teenage 12-year-old daughter with an iPod. And God the Father says, here's my son. Don't let him die. Isn't that nuts? God began this movement with a teenage couple. And then I call her God's first responder because she's the first one that responded to the Christian message. You ever think about that? I never did until I read a sermon by somebody named Tim Keller, and he said it better than I can, so I'm just going to rip him off and read it straight from his message. <laughs> Here's what he says. He says, Mary is the first Christian. 
She's the worst, first one who responds to the message. How she received the message, how she responded to it. What you have here is the first Christian. She's the first one to ever hear the message of Christmas, the message particularly about Jesus, and responds affirmatively to it. She can help us, not just by being an example for us, but help us to evaluate and measure our own experience with Jesus. Because too many people think that being religious or being a Christian is about measuring up to God's standard, doing your best. And when you finally make it to the mark, that God finally says, okay, now you're good. Now just wait until you die and then you'll come to heaven. And that's not the message. And that's not what the Bible actually shows us, even from the beginning. The beginning was one rule. Don't eat the tree. Adam, Eve, come here. See the tree? Don't eat it. All the other trees, eat them. One tree. Just don't touch. And like a two-year-old to the stovetop is like, ah, I gotta touch it. Something's good about that if they don't want me to have it. And they took the tree and they ate the fruit and she gave it to her husband and they run and hide. When they hear God coming. I think we forget this. They didn't sin and then go, oh, where's God? Where's God when it hurts? We need him right now. Where is he? I can't find him. Can you see him? No. They go jumping into the bushes. God comes running into the garden. And God is the first one who says, where are you? The first seeker of scripture is God. He initiates and humans respond. I don't know what your story is and I don't know how you came here and I don't know how you became a Christian or if you aren't yet a Christian but you're here and maybe you're taking a step toward it, I got news for you. You didn't do that. You didn't have much to do with it at all. All you saw was how God brought certain people into your life at the right time, or God had the girlfriend break up with you at the right time, or God had the divorce happen right at the right time, or something, the job was lost at the right moment, and you suddenly woke up and said, my life is a wreck, and I need to get it right. And then you realized that you couldn't get it right, and somebody told you about how Jesus can put it right, and you bowed the knee to him, and that's how you came to Christ. Because I don't care how bad you are, how evil you are, how sinful you are, how horrible your record or your past, you can't save yourself. But God loves to save people just like you. And he initiates and we respond. Can we say that formula together? Because we gotta get this right, ready? He initiates and we respond. And Mary is God's first responder. Have you ever responded? Have you ever responded to God? Have you ever responded, not to the general idea of God, but Jesus? Now, her first response is not so good. Her first response is, in verse 34, how will this be? says, I am a virgin. What is she doing? She's looking at what she's got. She's looking at her life. She's measuring herself 
against what God is saying, and she falls short. How could this possibly be? This is not possible. We can't do this, and maybe that's some of you, and you say, I just can't do it. I could never live up to God's stand. I could never make it right. I could never fix myself. I'm too evil. I'm too sinful. The only reason why I'm here today is because somebody dragged me here. Well, you're here for the first time, and let me just say to you confidently, I know how you feel. I know how you feel because I'm a pastor and I go on vacation. And when I go on vacation, I feel obligated to go to church. And it's not possible sometimes to come back here. So I will go to strange churches. And I know, I know what it's like to go to a strange church for the first time. It is scary. And I will walk in and I am a pastor, man. I am a man of the cloth. I don't know what that means, but that's what they call me, all right? So, and I will walk into this building, no cloth, just clothes, and I will walk into this building, strange and, and weird place, and, and I'll just be praying. My heart starts racing, and I just start praying, oh God, don't let them ask me to stand. Oh God, don't let, me, don't let them ask me to acknowledge myself or raise my hand for being a first-time visitor. Please, God, don't let me do that. Just let me get in and get out and go to lunch, and that's it. So I feel you because we don't run to God normally and we don't come out of our closet and our hiding places and we don't do that on our own. God is the one who comes and finds us. And her first response is, I can't do that. But grace, because the angel doesn't leave, right? Angel does not say, well, you had your chance. I'll move on to somebody else down the street. You could have been really important, Mary. You could have been somebody. You could have been really cool, but forget it. <laughs> Doesn't say that, does he? He stays with her. He works with her. This is it. This is how it works with God. There's give. There's play. Even, even in the beginning, right? God said, don't eat the tree. The day you eat the tree, you shall surely die. They eat the tree, who dies? They don't die. God shows up and kills a lamb and clothes them with it. It's the first prophetic word of Jesus Christ, the true and final lamb of God, whose righteousness we are clothed in when we come to God as we are. So she responds badly, but the angel stays with her, and then the angel explains to her, you don't have to worry about it, God will take care of it. And I can understand Mary's Doubt and her question, because out of all the people in all the world and of all the places in all the world, this had to be the last place anybody expected God to show up in. See, Luke paints us a picture that we often neglect or forget or just ignore because we've heard these verses so many times. We've heard this story, Nazareth. We've heard of Galilee, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joseph, yeah, Mary, yeah, yeah, Virgin. We know, we know, we know it all. Okay, now tell me something I don't know. No, let's back that up for a moment and let's look at the details Luke gives us on purpose so that we can understand what God is really doing. Okay, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of, what's the city of what? Galilee. Let's talk about Galilee. All right, Galilee was the northern section of Israel. So Israel is like this little, uh, you know, thin little nation in the Middle East. 
And Judea's down here, and Jerusalem, the city of David, the city where all the kings dwelt, the, the still to this day, the most holiest site of three religions are all aimed at Jerusalem. And da- back in those days, it was even more important that everybody who's from God goes to Jerusalem or comes from Jerusalem. And that's not where God goes. So you got Jerusalem, Judea down here, then you've got Samaria up here, and way up in the north, you've got Galilee. And outside of that, that's it. That's the end of Israel. So it's like America, right? Let's look at it like America, right? You want to do something powerful for God in America, where are you going to go? The Bible Belt, baby. Woohoo! That's where all the Christians are. That's where all the hallelujahs are. Praise the Lord's are. Let's get to somebody fired up from the Bible Belt. And then they got like West Virginia. We don't know what those people are doing, right? <laughs> and then we got New England. The frozen chosen? <laughs> you don't get God from New England. Come on. We're too cool for that, right? We're too, we're too staunch. We're too angry at the weather, man. Forget about God coming from the north. And that's kind of like what Galilee is. Northern forgotten region. Let me tell you something else about Galilee. Galilee was the place where foreign armies always invaded. Because Israel was was bordered by the sea over here and mountains over here. And so if you wanted to invade Jerusalem, which everybody did, you went through Galilee. And so Galilee got the worst of the army, the best of the army, and the brunt of the war. If the army didn't make it to Jerusalem, it was all right. They just harmed Galilee. This place was war-torn. This place was backwoods. This place was no no man's land. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9 in the prophecy about Jesus, it talks about Galilee. And it says, Galilee was the place of darkness. The people of darkness have seen a great light. Oh, you don't expect God from Galilee. The other thing about Galilee was it was agricultural. It was farming community. It was, you know, you didn't live next door to people. You had acres of land, and then somebody was there with their acres of land. So you didn't have neighbors, all right? So Galilee is kind of like Western Massachusetts, right? It's like we know it's there, but we don't really acknowledge its existence. There's farmers, there's woods, there's Berkshires. Uh, It's like this big border between us and New York because we hate the Yankees. That's all Western Massachusetts really is. And if you're from Western Massachusetts and you're offended, don't be because I'm from Western Massachusetts. And I know that there ain't nothing in Western Massachusetts. Sorry. You don't get God from there. And then let's look at the next detail. To a city from or to a city of Galilee named, what's the name? Now, we know Nazareth. There's been a movie called Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth today is 300,000 people strong. Nazareth today has a holy uh, sepulcher where they believe that that's where Jesus was born, or a holy site, and that's where Jesus was, you know, not born, but con- uh, conceived, and, and that's where Mary and Joseph lived with Jesus. It's a tourist attraction today, but back then when Jesus was first born, Nazareth was home to, get this, 50 to 100 people. 50 to 100 people. There are more people in the first five rows of this church right now than there were in Galilee when the angel came, in Nazareth when the angel came to see Mary. And Nazareth, you don't go to Nazareth. You go through Nazareth. Nazareth was between two big cities in Galilee, Sepphoris and Tiberias. And you went back and forth through this road, and right smack dab in the middle was Nazareth. You went through it. 
Nazareth was the place where you got off the highway to get the kids a big gulp and you to get gas. You don't stay there. You get out as fast as possible. And even in John chapter 1, when the disciples are starting to gather around Jesus and Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, Hey, Nathaniel, come. We found the Messiah. We found him. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel responds and says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? The hypothetical answer is no. But today the answer is God. God, gas, and big gulps <laughs> come from Nazareth. And then it says this, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was, what's the name? Joseph and of the house of David, and the virgin's name was? Mary. So we think, oh yeah, Joseph, Mary, Joseph, Mary. Yeah, of course, Joseph, Mary, perfect pick. Um, at this time, Mary was about the most common name possible for a young girl her age in Israel. Estimates are that there was about 30% of the population who named their little girls Mary after Miriam, Moses' sister. So kind of big, important name. So in a town with 100 people, there's probably about 25 Marys just running around. So she's like not like anything special. There's nothing unique about her. She's just common and ordinary. And Joseph, of course, a very, very famous name from uh, the, the story of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat deal and all that stuff. And so you have these very common named people. And then, of course, they're poor because they live in Nazareth. And the Bible even says that when they go to offer sacrifice at the temple that they can't afford a lamb, they got to offer turtle doves and a pigeon. So they're poor people. Backwoods, farming community, no man's land, poor people who couldn't read. They're probably illiterate. And, and this, this is how God's going to start changing the world? <laughs> really? Like almost anybody else would have been a better pick. God says, perfect. And there you have a picture of the gospel. There you have a picture of it because you don't have to measure up for God. God is big enough, powerful enough, more awesome enough that you don't need to be good enough for him. He's plenty good for you. And then Luke makes sure we know that she's a virgin and she's betrothed. Now, the betrothal process went like this. A man's father found a girl's father, gave him some sheep and goats. They made a deal. These two kids get married in one year. That was it. It was a betrothal for one year. And the, and, the, and the man, Joseph, would go and prepare his house and get it all ready for Mary. And then Mary would get herself all ready for that one-year event. And she's a virgin. Okay, now listen, the absolute worst thing a virgin could do in that one year of her life, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count, okay? What is the worst thing a virgin could possibly do in that year? Anybody wanna know? Get pregnant. You get pregnant in that year, guess what happens? The groom cuts it off immediately. No more engagement. Not only that, but the fathers of the families are disgraced publicly, humiliated in this small community. And in some cases, they would have a trial and an investigation to find out how it happened and who's the culprit. 
And in some cases, they would drag the young pregnant teen out into the middle of the town square, and they would label her and yell at her and scream at her and spit in her face because she had done something unthinkable. And that would teach all the other young girls not to do it that way. This is who God chooses. This is how God is going to change the world. (laughs) In the backwoods agricultural section of Israel that is forgotten and decimated by war, in a no-name town called Nazareth with common, ordinary, illiterate, impoverished people named Joseph and Mary. And the reason is because Jesus does not need to be from a significant place. He being in the place is what makes it significant. And Jesus doesn't need to come from significant people. Him being in the lives of those people is what makes them significant. And Jesus doesn't need able-bodied people. He is the ability in him we live and move and have our being. And through Christ, I can do all things who gives me strength. Jesus is enough for anybody and everybody who will hear and respond to God's invitation of salvation. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So Angel doesn't leave. Angel talks her through this thing, and and she doesn't really look like she has anything to offer, and it's like, perfect. That's exactly what we need. And the angel responds. The Holy Spirit, verse 35, will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, she's also conceived, and this is her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Powerful, powerful verse. And then look at Mary's second response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There's so much here. I just want to spend a moment to unpack it with us together. She says, behold, I am. The word behold could also be translated here. Here I am. What was, what was Adam's and Eve's response to God when he came to the garden? I was afraid and I hid. And Mary turns the script around. Here's what God is able to do and says, here I am. I'm coming out of hiding. I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to open my heart. God, here I am. And then she says, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. In other words, I am here to serve God's purposes. Okay, let me tell you what is not Christianity, okay? What is not Christianity is this idea that God is up in the sky waiting to serve our purposes. I don't know, maybe you heard that somewhere. Maybe you saw a television evangelist tell you that. That's not on God's radar. God has been doing something since the human history began, and he is up to something, and it's not about him playing a part in your life or being a bigger part of your life. It is about you surrendering your entire life to his eternal and awesome plan. I am your servant. This is why sometimes life does not make sense. Why things happen that we don't have an explanation for. Why we'll go to church and we'll do the right things and we'll think, okay, I'm really doing right by God now. And then suddenly all hell will break loose and we'll say, why? God, you owe me something better than this. No, 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 no. God is doing something far bigger than you. 
It is never he's my servant. It is I am the servant of the Lord. And then she says, let it be. I am the passive participant in this adventure. I'm going to back off. I don't have to manipulate the circumstances anymore. I don't have to get those people to like me anymore. I don't have to be the person that I imagine myself to be anymore. I don't have to earn a lot of money and have a lot of stuff and have a lot of things to make myself significant for God. Let it be. What you want, God, is what I want. And if you want me poor, I'll be poor. And if you want me rich, I'll be rich. And if you want me middle class, I'll be middle class. And it's all about letting God have his way with you. But she doesn't just say, let it be. She says, let it be to me. What's the next word? According. Okay, so let it be is cool. It's a great idea. It's like the Beatles, right? John, Paul, Ringo, the other guy. And, and they're like, let it be. But that's not the Christian experience. That's not how God wants us to respond to him. Let it be to me according to your word. Let your plan happen to my life, God. Okay, we all have our plans. We all have our ideas. I, I think that we forget that Mary had a plan. She was busy preparing for her wedding day. She was preparing herself and getting her friends ready and the dresses all prepped up or whatever and expecting that her life was going to go like this. She was going to marry Joseph, move into his house, make a lot of babies, grow up, watch those babies have babies, and die. And she probably would have been really happy with that plan. And God says, I got a different plan. You're going to be pregnant now. <laughs> By the Holy Spirit, all right? And this is going to happen to you and through you. Now, have you ever heard that line? And I've heard it, so I know you've heard it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You've heard that, right? We've all heard that. That sounds great. I love it. God loves me. Woohoo! wonderful, yes. And he has a plan for my life, really, me, little old me, yeah. And we take it so wrong. We take it so wrong, we take it so ethereal and, and weird because we're trying to figure out what God's plan is. And then we become real mystical about it, like, okay. The person at Dunkin' Donuts was mean to me. Is that God trying to tell me not to drink coffee anymore? Where, where, where does God want me to live? And what does God want me to do with my life? And what, is God, how, what, what job should I take? We have per, two jobs, like perfect position jobs are ever offered. It's like a, a gold mine of opportunity. And people will sit there and say, oh God, which one? I don't want to make a mistake. Just take one. <laughs> take one. Start with the alphabet. Which one's lower in the alphabet? Pick that one. Okay, there we go. But we're all like mystical about the plan of God and the plan of God. And could I possibly mess up the plan of God? For my, maybe I did mess up the plan of God for my life. And so we live with regret because we blew it. We can't go back and fix it anymore. Now the plan's messed up. It's all my fault. We live with guilt and regret and condemnation. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. Because the 
plan of God is not a mystery. And the plan of God is not unheard of. She says, according to your word, John the apostle writes this beautiful introduction to his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him and for him and by him. And then later on it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to me. The word is Jesus. So when it comes to God's plan for your life, here it is. Jesus is the plan. He's the plan. And, and God's plan called Jesus is so much better than your plan. So much better. And it's going to be great when you keep your eyes on Jesus. It's not God in general. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And you got to open your heart and let him in. And then you take it one day at a time. See, this is, what, this is what freaks out a lot of people about giving their lives to Jesus. This is what freaks them out. I don't want to do that. I got a lot of stuff I want to do right now, and I got a lot of fun I want to have. And I know I should. I really should. But the moment I do, I know that God's going to call me to Africa, and I'm going to have to be a missionary and live in poverty. And I really like my Sealy Posturepedic mattress, and I don't want to give that up. And we all freak out about this weird, mystical, crazy plan. And God is not looking for that. He's looking for a relationship with you. It's a lot like pregnancy, okay? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about pregnancy. Pregnancy is crazy in the beginning and in the end, right? You get pregnant, it's like, whoa, we're pregnant. <laughs> Everybody celebrate. And then it's like day at a time. And in the end, it gets really crazy, right? It's painful, it's obnoxious, you're like rushing to the hospital, you're sweating, you're like, oh my goodness, this is crazy, what's going to happen, are we going to be able to do this, and you get to the hospital, nurses have done it every day for the last 30 years, and they're like, calm down, everything's going to be fine, but it's crazy for you, right, the end is crazy, and the beginning is crazy, but in the middle, it's a whole lot of one day at a time, it's a whole lot of relationship, there's a person living in there. <laughs> and moms, pregnant moms, have, have this wonderful experience. And uh, I just want to say as a man, we're not truly jealous about it because... <laughs> we know what's coming up, but... <laughs> pregnant moms have this, this amazing experience with this child. They have this... They have this relationship that nobody else has with the child. For nine months, they know when it kicks. They know when it's agitated. They know when it's comfortable. They know where it's sleeping. When, when my firstborn was in my wife's womb, we were at a concert, and they started playing country music, right? And all of a sudden, Olivia's just in the womb like, yeah, like this, right? She's just going crazy. And Cheryl's like, feel, feel, he, she's kicking, she's kicking. And I felt it was so amazing. And I'm like, oh, no, she likes country music. <laughs> but, you know, they, they can tell you how the baby is 
sitting in there and sleeping in there and where the head is and all that stuff. And, then, and they have this beautiful relationship with someone that they love dearly and they've never met face to face. But one day they will. One day they will. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Let him in. Let him in. And then, and then don't think crazy now. Don't think nuts. Just one day at a time. And then you'll see him. Now, he's going to change you slowly, methodically. And people will see there's something different about you. But you got to respond and say yes. And then John kind of closes it out for us, this whole idea, because here's what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what, will we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, you're either one or two people. You either have to let him in for the first time or you got to stop fighting for your rights and your plans and your purposes and your dreams and let him have his way inside of you because you're going to meet him one day and that day will be awesome and beautiful and nothing else will matter anymore. <laughs>